a good psalm. So we have to take that one in pieces because it's so, so large. But you see in verse, verse 10, I think it was, it said, With my whole heart I seek you. And I just trust that's where we're at this morning as we come together uh, before the Lord, that we're thinking of seeking him, not just trying to find out more truth, more information, understand more about God, but that we're seeking him even with our hearts. And we'll be thinking a little bit more about that as we go along through the service or through this message. But last week, uh, we learned that if our faith is practical, if it's a practical faith, a real faith, a faith that makes a difference in our life from day, day to day, then it'll affect the way we think about finances. And it'll even affect the way we don't think about finances. And we understand how important finances are, how important it is to be financially responsible. We have to work for a living. We need money to live, that sort of thing. And so it takes up a big part of our life and a can take up a huge part of our thought patterns. And so it's an important marker for us in understanding, you know, has my faith affected me to the depths of my being? Is it really even affecting the way I think about finances? Um, because it, it, it's got to be there, but it shouldn't even be a close second when it comes to um, the riches that we have in Christ. And a lot of times it can creep to the top of our priority list. And, you know, we can't just maintain the order, the proper priority, by saying, oh, I'm going to put finances out of my mind. It has to be um, through filling our heads with the Lord and the importance of who He is that things take their proper order. And then in our relationship with him, that shapes uh, the way we look at and deal with material things. We may, may even find as Christ fills our hearts and lives more and more um, that we just want less and less other things. That's a great way to be financially stable, isn't it? To just want less want less of the things of this world and want more of Christ. So let's come before this Lord who loves us. You know, we sing, we're singing about all those, you know, his magnificence on his throne, but it talks about adoring him, doesn't it? So let's try and do that as we, as we come before him. Father, we, we thank you for your love, your greatness, your power, your control over this world. We look to you as God and ruler, as sovereign, as our Lord. But we pray that you'd help us to understand um, the way you want to fill that role as a loving Heavenly Father, as a God who cares for his people and his people as individuals. Lord, I pray that each one of us here this morning would be growing in, developing that personal relationship with you, that we would understand what it is to love you. There's so many different versions 
distortions of love in this world. And yet, you've called us to love you in a true way, in a pure way. And we can only truly understand that as we learn from you. So lead us, even as we look in your word right now, as you speak to us through truth that we sometimes register as, as hard truth, as cold truth, as facts. But help us to understand that it is you, uh, a loving God, speaking to us from your heart to ours, that we can grow and learn and live and love you in the way that we ought. So lead us, we pray, in this time we have together. Amen. Amen. So James continues in chapter 1 to talk about trials. We've been dealing with all sorts of trials and uh, this one he lands on today obviously has spiritual implications. We're going to be talking about temptations. And many times, you know, as we think about trials, the challenges of life, as we think of what we talked about last week, uh, this financial area or the week before our search for wisdom, so often when we deal with these things, we deal with them in a secular way. We don't think of them spiritually. But this one, there's no way to miss the spiritual implication. We have a God who created us. He placed us in this world to live for him as a reflection for him. We have desires in our heart that would lead us away from that, from living for him in the way he wants and so we understand that, those desires to be temptations. And they're things that can affect our relationship with God. And so we go, yeah, temptation. This is, this is something interesting and important in terms of our, our spiritual walk. It's a spiritual struggle because it affects our relationship with God when we fail to live according to his character, his truth, and we live according to the lie that we're the one who's important, that the way things, you know, the way things should go is the way we want them to go. So what is it? What is it that can keep us on course when there are temptations, things that would draw us away from doing what we should do? Well, there's a commitment to the relationship. This is what we're going to find in these few verses. Commitment to a relationship, refusal to complain, and a, and a comprehending or comprehension, not only of the route that we're to take, but of also of the result. So let's read these few verses together. Let's dig into them and see if uh, we can understand more what God is trying to communicate to us here. In James chapter 1, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man. No, I'm going to say it this way. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. 
So as James begins these verses and as he begins to talk about temptation, he brings up this character trait of steadfastness, which we remember was in the first few verses of this letter, this idea of steadfast. And it's not something we're just simply supposed to have, but it's something that the Lord is intentionally and purposefully trying to help us to grow in. He wants us to be people who endure. He wants us to be able to be people who persevere. And maybe the word that is the best that we understand clearest is this idea of endurance. God wants you and I to build our endurance. Now, I went to school in a time where you went into grade nine and everybody, everybody had to take phys ed. And part of that phys ed was that everybody had to run cross country. Nice. So what we're going to do here, no. <laughs> you think about that. What, what was it they wanted? They wanted us to be exercising and this whole idea of running distances, it, it builds your endurance. You can keep going. You can carry on. And in a spiritual sense, this is what God is trying to do for us. And you know, there were people who were cross-country runners who were in grade 9 phys ed. There were people who weren't cross-country runners in grade 9 phys ed, obviously. The majority. But everybody over that period of time where, you know, phys ed class started with two laps. And then, you know, you just did it every, every, every day. And then you were out running the cross-country trails. Everybody, no matter where they were at in life, whether they were athletic or not, everybody grew in endurance. Everybody was able to, to persevere longer than they were before. And so often, you know, we just sort of think, oh, you know, that's not my thing. I don't do that. And yet when it comes to the spiritual life, when it comes to God's offer of a relationship with us, not one of us should be saying, well, I don't do this thing, this steadfastness, this thing, enduring, putting up with challenges and trials and doing better. Well, that's not me. Well, guess what? It may not be you. It may not be me. We may not be good at this, but this is something that God has called us to. This is something that he's invited us into, good spiritual health, being able to endure. And he says, hey, I'm going to keep giving you challenges. You're going to grow. You're going to be able to grow in your steadfastness. You think of it, this temptation thing. Boy, they're coming all the time. Temptation is a trial in and of itself. But in all of our trials, in all of the challenges we face, there's also an element of temptation, right? Any trial we get, we, we want to give up and run the other way, or we might. And that's definitely a temptation. But we see that God wants us to be unflinching, unhindered. He wants us to be, to be facing every temptation with a, a constant,
consistent negative response to sin where we say, no, I'm not going to do it. But then the obvious question is how? How is it that we can grow in our steadfastness? How is it that we can relentlessly refuse to sin? And as temptations come our way, we, we turn our back on them. We say, no, I'm not going to do it. Well, it's because of relationship. You see, oftentimes we think it's about us being stoic. It's about us not wanting to be involved in sin and I'm too big for sin and I can kind of isolate myself and say, I have no need for sin. And we sing that little song, Simon and Garfunkel sing, I am a rock, I am an island. You know, I can stand against the forces of temptation. I can stand on my own. But it's not that. It's a relationship. It's a relationship of love that should keep us standing strong in the midst of temptation. It's not isolationism, emotionless isolationism. It's, it's this idea that we cling to God. We go to him. And this word steadfastness tips us off in terms of the relationship. We can stead fastly refuse sin because we have a God who has a steadfast love for us comes up in the Old Testament all the time that phrase steadfast love steadfast love what is it it's a covenantal love it's a grace filled love it's a commitment that he has for us And so we continue to grow in our love for him. In our reflection of his love to us. We reflect it back to him. A true reflection of his commitment. If not perfect, it is a true reflection of all that he has done for us. You think of that. Is that the way that we face temptation? Is that the way we face this life in generally? In general, thinking about our love for God? Thinking about how our love needs to grow with Him? You know, it would be a sad thing if the only thing that kept us on course, that kept us on track in our Christian life, that kept us from temptation and from falling into sin was simply our fear. Well, we don't want anybody else to know that we're a sinner. We don't want to feel guilty. We don't want this to get out in the open, so I won't do it. Imagine if that was what governed govern the relationship between a husband and wife. I'm going to be true to my spouse. Well, because I wouldn't want anybody else to know that I failed in that relationship. I would hate to have to deal with the guilt. Wreck my life and the way things are going. 
Would it not be sad if that was the only thing that kept us on course? Shouldn't it be the love that we have for our spouse? Shouldn't that be the thing that, wouldn't that be the ideal thing to keep us on course from looking in other directions, from falling into temptation and sin? It's obvious. That's a a beautiful picture for us. And that is what's being talked about here. That's the ideal and the intention of what God is speaking of through James in terms of this steadfastness. We look at the verse, verse 12. It says, blessed is the man. Happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And then the last part of that verse talks about God has promised this to those who love him. You see, that's what we're talking about. And maybe it's, it's been obvious, maybe it's been too obvious, and we've sort of overlooked this fact that we are supposed to be in love with God. We're supposed to have this, this overwhelming, affectionate commitment to him because of how good he is to us and we just kind of dumb it down and make it something more academic something more mechanical we were talking yesterday at the men's breakfast they, they did a presentation on, on daily devotions and it was good they were talking about a, the, you know, what we need to do in terms of you know, spending that daily time in the word of God. And, and I just, as I was listening to all this, I thought back to one thing, one word, devotion. You know, we talk about daily devotions. What's a devotion? What is a devotion? We've made it a noun, haven't we? But what is devotion? Devotion is love. Devotion is care. Devotion is concern. And as we have those daily devotions, as we spend time in the word, as we we discipline in a good way ourselves to have that quiet time, we can't forget about who we're having that time with. Because so many times we do, don't we? So many times we have our daily devotion with a book. We make it a noun and it's just the Bible we're opening. Rather than remembering that that daily time is a devotional time where we show our devotion to God. That's what he's done for us. He's shown his devotion to us. Not in a mechanical way, but he shows us love, well, through the cross in Christ, obviously. But also on a daily basis, he shows his love to us as he he carries us along. And how do we respond to him? How is it 
that we reflect his steadfast love back to him. There's a lot being written today about a thing called attachment love. What is this? What is attachment love? Actually, you can look it up on on the computer and it talks a lot about relationships, you know, just human relationships. But in Christian writing, they're talking about this idea of attachment love because they're identifying it as a key source of Christian growth and transformation. In fact, full stop here, it's the only source the only source of ongoing and permanent transformation in a person's life. Attachment love. You see, so often when we come to God, we, we, we just think of him as humanly, as a disciplinarian, as someone who's going to correct us and judge us if we're not corrected. You say Proverbs 1.7, it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. True. It is the beginning of wisdom. We understand that God is right and to run away from him or to run against his truth is to our peril. But it's a sad thing if the relationship carries on that way. It's a sad thing if we live our lives just constantly in fear of God, well, I'm going to do the right things because I'm not going to fall into that temptation because. And these authors, as they've written about this idea of attachment love, they say it's the only way that someone can truly be transformed. You can be reformed in a way for a while, with fear of punishment. But if you have true love for someone, you can be transformed for good. And that someone is God. Think of it in terms of the parent-child relationship you know when kids are little they they only seem to understand punishment they do understand love but they understand at the beginning that oh there can be corporal punishment I feel this pain that was wrong they identify those things together but imagine if a child continued to grow and that's all there was was this fear of punishment fear of punishment and that was the parent-child relationship would that be a beautiful thing yet that is natural and unfortunately what sometimes does carry on how wonderful it is when the child learns to love their parent and honor their parent because of that love. The relationship matures. And we think about our relationship with God, which is 
a parent-child relationship. And we think how often it doesn't mature in the way that it should. That we're not doing what we should be doing because we've grown and understood how great he is, how great his love is for us. And, and we simply want to please him. Or maybe we understand that. We understand that in our lives. But then we slide back into this fear. Just fear. We live our lives with this threat hanging over us where we think, oh no, if I don't do this, I'm going to get in trouble. If I don't do this, God's going to pay me back rather than saying, I love him. Rather than developing that love for him. You know what this does? makes the first part of our service a lot more important, doesn't it? Say, how so? Well, we go to the Word and we get some objective teaching and hopefully that objective teaching is given in love. It's not me up here threatening. I hope you never feel like it's, it's a threat when we open the Word of God. You better do this. No, it's, it's love. It's God communicating how our relationship works with him. But think about the first part of the service, the worship part of the service. Once again, noun or verb? Are we participating in the worship? Or are we worshiping? Are we practicing worship or adoration to God as we sing these words the words of these songs that have been carefully written by people who have studied God's word and are trying to communicate back to God their love for him it's so important that we are actively loving God and it's hard I admit, it's difficult. How do you love a spiritual being that you cannot see that's so far? But what we do is we rehearse what he has done for us. That's a lot of times what we're singing about. How great God is, what he's done for us as a world, personally. And then we're putting to words our love back to him. And hopefully not just, you know, lip syncing. <laughs> I mean, there could even be noise coming out. But if it's not coming from our heart, if we're not thoughtfully thinking, whoa, this is who my God is. This is what he's done for us. And oh, I understand how that applies to what just happened the other day. Or I know that I can trust him for what's going to happen in this coming week. And all of a sudden, we realize 
the Christian life is not about living life under threat of punishment. It's about living in relationship with a God who's shown incredible love to us. And a God who we need to develop a love for because in this love relationship, we're the ones who are failing here. We're the ones who are falling short. And I'm not just talking about, oh, we we fall into sin, but we don't understand. And we don't have that devotion, that affectionate commitment to him where we say, I want to live in proper relationship with you, God. I want to do your will. I want to have that same affection and care for you that you have had for me. Every one of us probably could say, boy, I fall short there. My understanding of who God is and how I'm to love him and and having that from the heart, you know, as David writes in the psalm, from my whole heart, But are we practicing? Are we practicing that love? Do we speak of that love? I was reading something just just the other day, not in preparation for this, but just the idea that, you know, even in our prayers, is it that we're talking to a God who we see as a God who loves us with his whole being? Do we understand? Are we Are we in communication or have our prayers just been reduced to sort of thoughts? And this writer was talking about the importance of even speaking prayers aloud. Because we are engaging, truly engaging in communication with God. It's not just our consciousness. It's not just us sort of thinking about things. I think it was in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, Screwtape Letters, which is, it's a a fictitious book, but it has a lot of truth in it. And it's one uh, demon talking to another. He says, if you can make your, your patient, because these demons had patients who were Christians, and they were trying to, trying to deal with them and trying to affect them and influence them. He says, if you can make your patient feel that just simple thoughts going through their mind were prayers, you've accomplished a great feat. Because they think they're praying, but they're not. They're just simply thinking about things, maybe in a religious way. Maybe in a truthful way, but they're not engaging with God. That's what Satan would want, isn't it? To do anything he can to put an obstacle between us and God. How is our love for God? 
we see that that's how this first verse is framed. Blessed is the man, happy in this love relationship with God where we're obeying him. That's how we're going to be able to be steadfast by returning his love for us. That's what produces profound permanent change. Not even, not even reward. Not even the prize. Well, if I can, you know, stay on course here, then I know I'm going to get eternity. You think of it. We talked about the rich young ruler last week, didn't we? He comes up again this week. Talks here about a crown of life. A crown of life if we are steadfast. And we think, yeah, just, just knowing eternity's out there. But you know, the rich young ruler, he was a perfect negative example of how even a prize will not, will not allow us to stand steadfast against temptation. If this guy was a rich young ruler, we know that he was driven, capable, and accomplished. And if people who are capable and driven and accomplished want a prize, you know they're going to get that prize, right? What did he want? He came to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to get eternal life? And then at the end of the story, it says he went away sad. Because he was very rich and his attachment Love was to his wealth. That's what he wanted more than anything. That's what he was in love with. (laughs) He was in love with himself and his riches. And Jesus tells us, if anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. John 14 And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me doesn't keep my words. And we need to understand that. If we're not willing to walk with God in obedience with him, we're not showing him love. We're not loving God. The great one who loved us, first of all, perfectly. And so Jesus frames it. This whole relationship, this idea of obedience, this idea of walking faithfully. Not in fear of retribution, but in love. Just think of it from this angle. Do we have problems with steadfastness in our Christian life? I know I do. Is it because we're approaching the Christian life in a very natural and humanistic way? A man-centered way? We think, I know that I shouldn't sin. And I need to try harder so I won't be ashamed. Ah, that's cold. It's lifeless. But it's the way I naturally think about things as a human being. 
I know I shouldn't sin. I need to try harder so I won't be ashamed. Rather than thinking about things from the relationship that is true that we have with God, I know I cannot help but sin apart from the grace of God. So I need to draw closer to him in relationship with him, in a submissive obedience, in a dependent submissive obedience. Thank you for what you have done for me, taking away my sins. Christ died on the cross and our sins were erased. We come in, in thankful love and we say, Lord, help me to honor you. Help me to walk with you because I can't do it on my own. And in those same passages where Christ talks about his love and coming to us, he talks about giving us his spirit. And that relationship that we have, that love relationship we, that that we have is not just something that we have to work on ourselves, but we're shored up by the presence of His Spirit in our lives. We walk with Him through this life. We submit to God. We submit to God. We resist the devil, but we submit to God. It's that relationship first. James 4, 7 says that. Submit to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. If you're in the company of Christ, if that relationship is strong, he's not going to stick around. And basically what we're saying is, not I should not sin. I don't want to sin. I'm not going to sin. We're saying, I love you more, God. I love you more. I love you more than the world. I love you more than myself and these desires that are, are pulling me away. Think of that phrase that says about Moses when he was raised in, in Egypt. It says he chose, I think it's in Hebrews, it talks about him choosing God over the pleasures of sin for a season. He loved God more. And so this is the question for us as we think about real faith having victory over temptation. It's about a commitment, a love commitment that we have with God. If it's just about us trying not to sin, we're going to be a pushover. If it's about a growing love with God, we'll be able to persevere. Our love motivated by his great love for us second part we move into verse 13 real faith is victory over temptation through not complaining um it says here let no one say when he's tempted i'm being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one when difficulties arise um we're conditioned especially in our world our version of the world today to, to complain, to blame somebody else. It's got to be somebody else's fault. It's not mine. 
There's a lawsuit out there for everything. We can blame everything on everyone else. But we don't ever look at life as, wait a minute, I'm a sinful person living in a fallen world. What about me? What about my responsibility? We're ready to blame everybody else. And we go right to the top. At work, blame the boss. In our country, we blame the prime minister. And here, James is warning us about our propensity to blame God. We may not say it outright. I mean, we probably, maybe many of you know this verse already. So we wouldn't blame God out, outrightly. But the way we respond is sort of with a, a, a blame. You know, God is at fault here. And blaming God for evil or for temptation is a danger, especially when we have a biblical understanding of who God is. Because God is sovereign over all things. Could he have made this a perfect world? Yes, he could have. We read in Ephesians 1.11, He who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works out everything according to the counsel of his will. He's not just a God who got the ball rolling and then watches helplessly as things start to smack into each other. He's not just the one who brings everything to a final glorious ending. He is a God of the details. He is in absolute control of everything. And most of the time when, when we hear this spoken of, when we hear, you know, this idea of reconciling an all powerful God with evil that takes place in the world, we say he allows evil he allows it to happen and you know I looked at that and as I thought of how I would speak about this I thought man that's the safest way to go that's the safest way to talk about this to not end up blaming God in our hearts and minds for evil that takes place in the world But I'm going to go a little bit beyond safe here. Okay? I'm not going to blame God for evil. But when we look at the scriptures, when we go through the scriptures, we find a God who is over all things. A God who determines what takes place in this world. And probably the best example of this is the most horrible thing that took place in this world. You might remember in Acts chapter 2, as Peter is preaching that sermon on the day uh, of Pentecost, you might remember what he ends up saying. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men Peter 
inspired by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, is saying that the cross was determined by God. Yes, there were evil men who crucified him. But it was something that was determined by God. God determined something, but he was not morally guilty in that situation. And we might say, well, that's okay. That, that has to do with Jesus. But what about when bad things happen to me? Did God determine those things to happen to me? We go to the story of Job. We see behind the scenes things that we don't normally get to see. We hear things we don't normally get to hear as the book of Job is written. And as we hear Satan accusing God of favoring Job and that's why Job is honoring him and after God says, have you considered my servant Job? And as a human being, I'm going, God, why did you do that? Why did you bring up Job's name as Satan was accusing you of favoring people and taking care of people and that's the only reason they serve you? So have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth blameless and upright man who fears God, he turns away from evil. He was steadfast in the midst of temptation. And we see that there's this one situation here in, in, in Job's life. There are all these horrible things that are happening to him. But there are two very different purposes There's God's purpose. This is a trial. This is a test. I know you can do it, Job. In fact, I'll give you all the resources you need to do it. And then there's Satan who wants to crush, who wants to destroy Job in this situation. Satan's the roaring lion seeking who he may devour 1 Peter 5.8. So Peter says about Satan, he says, be careful. He's out there. He wants to crush you. He wants to destroy you. He will use any trial, any difficulty, any temptation to take you down. And the question is, will we see these situations, these things, not as temptations, but as a trial where we can come forth as gold, Peter, 1 Peter 1, 7 and 8. Peter tells us, rejoice in trials, just like James does. The testing of our faith, through the testing of our faith, will come forth as gold. That's all right for Peter to say. But what about poor Job? He was the one who was suffering. What about me? I'm the one who's suffering in this situation. Am I supposed to sit here and go, I'll, I'll come forth as gold? It'll be better someday. I'll grow stronger through it. If it doesn't kill you, it'll make you stronger, right? That's what everybody says. 
But you know Job? The guy who suffered way beyond anything any of us will ever suffer. What did he say? In Job chapter 23. I lost it here. Yes, Job 23.10, it says, but he knows the way I take. This is Job speaking. And when he's tried me, I'll come out as gold. Job loved God. He was able to be steadfast. He trusted God. He knew God cared for him. Another thing that we should see, that we should understand, that we should be able to apply to our own personal situations is a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We talk about temptation and we think about the trials that come our way. We need to understand this. You could actually read the entire passage, 1 down through 14 would be excellent. We don't have time for that right now. But verse 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you will be able to endure it. Isn't that interesting? It seems like Paul understood what James was writing about here. What Peter also wrote about. It's almost like there was one author behind all of this. That there was one truth being told here. That what we need to do is, is face these situations and understand the temptation. Yeah, is Satan's purpose in destroying us. But from God's perspective, the faith perspective, the one who trusts and loves God, they say, oh, this is a trial. This is a test that is meant to help me grow in my endurance. To make me stronger. To make me more a part of what God is doing and his purposes in this world. Real faith has victory over temptation through comprehension, through understanding. And we see what goes on here. Each person, this is the negative side of the understanding. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We, we can't blame God for the temptation to sin. God gives us challenges that we can be victorious in. Then desire, when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That is Satan's purpose. That's what he wants. And I guess the question that we need to ask is, do we understand what God is teaching us here? Do we accept truth? Another great passage. 
to read is 2 Timothy 2, 3-7. It's about a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer. It's talking about processes. It's talking about understanding the process, trusting God in processes. The soldier knows he needs to lay aside every weight and focus on, and the athlete, he has to train, and the farmer understands about planting and cultivating, cultivating, then planting, then cultivating, and, and bringing in the crop. They all understand there's this, there's this process. And there are challenges in the process. And those challenges are all a part of coming forth as gold at the end, the victory. I remember hearing a story about a, a guy who was, was in Vietnam. He was in the war and he said he had a drill sergeant when he was in boot camp before he went. And that man, when they were doing their drills, they were crawling on their belly, that man would actually kick them in the helmet if they put their head up. And they thought, this guy is so mean, he's so horrible, he's so terrible, this is, this is awful. But you know, the reason that guy was telling the story was because he was one of the guys who survived. And he talked about people who weren't put through such rigorous training, who would stick their head up at the wrong time. And the thing is, we, we, we think maybe, oh, this is too rigorous, this is too tough, this is too difficult. But what is at stake? Death. Death. The wages of sin is death. So we need to be steadfast trial steadfast when we're tempted don't lose heart don't worry if you're tempted temptation this is something to remember too temptation is not sin we can be so easily tempted because we're fragile human beings but temptation is not sin what what she said. Do you remember what Juanita read? Christ was tempted in all points as we were, yet without sin. He took on human flesh and weakness and he faced temptation. Temptation is not the thought that comes into our head. Martin Luther said this. He says, you know, temptations is like the birds flying around your head. But he said, don't let them build nests in your hair. We know from the Sermon on the Mount that temptation isn't just the act. But it's somewhere in between when that temptation, that thought that is flown into our head, turns from being, what are my two words? Turns from being just a thought into an intention. 
I learned about that from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. It talks about the word of God being a discerner. It cuts between. It says it can even divide, well, yeah, joints and marrow, but it can even divide thoughts and intentions. It can convict us when what has just been a thought that should be repelled, pushed aside, forgotten about, knows when it turns into an intention. Boy, this sounds like a lot of work. It sounds heavy. It sounds hard. It sounds like something we're constantly going to be working at. I was thinking about it. Let's go back to the farmer in terms of weeding. Weeding the vegetable garden. What do we do? When they're small, when they first poke through, that's when you weed them. It's easiest to deal with them. It's a constant thing, but no matter how innocuous they seem, no matter how harmless they seem, maybe they even have a little pretty flower on them. (laughs) Those weeds, pull them. If not, well, what's, what is it we lose? What is it, what is it in the end? It brings forth death. What is our commitment? Is it a love commitment to God? Is that where we're at? We understand it's not just the threat. Have we given up on blaming God and others and realized God's here to help us? He wants us to grow and know him better. Are we ready to face temptation with this biblical understanding inside of a relationship? with God through Jesus Christ. I want to pray. I'm going to borrow a prayer though. In my study I found this, came across this one in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 to 21. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and I will read it. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.